0: There's a story about British and American politics that goes something like this. The Trump and Brexit votes were both expressions of the same underlying problems. A culture war has erupted, aggravated by economic inequality, and both countries are now equally divided. Trust in democracy and institutions has collapsed. A rising willingness to believe and share misleading news stories is undermining our collective grip on reality. Okay, well, let's start with um, disunity. Western democracies are struggling. I think there is a real sense of not only division but pessimism. I
1: think the next three months are going to be very ugly in British politics. The real problem is
2: that we meant to have constitutions that somehow resolve our division. The dissolution of the country, the institutions, the bonds, the relationships.
1: The... Fiction writers creating fictional stories to try to sow confusion and discord. That spread.
2: Like wildfire.
0: That story has crystallised in the media over the last three years. But is it still a fair reflection of the latest public opinion research? It's good to question our assumptions about the world every now and again. And that's exactly what we're going to do this week. See, the person we haven't found so far is Mr Angry. You're told this country's about to be going nutty, right? The idea that everyone's sort of frothing at the mouth and full of anger. I don't meet many people like that and I haven't met any here yet.
1: You're listening to Polarise, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the forces driving us further apart and what we can do about them. I'm Matthew Taylor. And I'm Ian Leslie. So this week, Ian, we're looking at lots of new research on public opinion, a report published by the Social Market Foundation, which divides people up into anarchists versus centrists, a fascinating piece of research called A Need for Chaos and the Sharing of Hostile Political Rumours in Advanced Democracies. And also, I've been speaking to Michael Dimmock from the Pew Research Centre in the US and Bobby Duffy from the Policy Institute at King's College London about the similarities and differences between US and UK public opinion. So today, Ian, we're kind of drenched in data and research and insight. But what's your starting point on this kind of big question. I guess you don't think it's as simple as saying, well, there's something going wrong in America and Britain, it's the same thing. And that thing that's going wrong is leading directly to the consequences we see.
0: No, I don't think so. I mean, it, there may there may be some similarities. Um, but if you look around the world, you'll see the same kind of political turbulence and the same kind of rise of populist or kind of anti-establishment political movements in very different contexts, sometimes in, in countries with a very high inequality and countries which suffered very badly from the financial crisis, others in, in countries where that's not really true, in Australia, for example, which didn't kind of suffer from the financial crisis. So once once you get down to the level of, okay, are these things all the same, it's harder and harder to identify what the what the common theme is. One of them is obviously technology and the internet and the way that's changed the way we we, we think and talk about politics and perhaps we'll, we'll come on to that. But other than that, it's it's hard to put your finger on one thing. But what that means is that we, because there's so many competing explanations, we tend to kind of go for the one that we we, we want to believe or we already did believe. So, for instance, you see there's a lot of emphasis on economic inequality on the left and there's, there's a kind of more of an emphasis on, on the the erosion of tradition and, and social norms and so on from, from people on the right. So there's a, a lot of confirmation bias at work. Well, that that point, in which I which, which I
1: find hard to disagree with, which is that, you know, actually we do need to look at the way in which this is different from country to country. And we'll come on to this a bit more because in my conversations with Michael Dimmick and Bobby Duffy, we got to some really quite stark differences between America and the UK. But actually, it, it's useful at this point to to talk about this paper by Mirko Dracker and Carlo Schwartz from the University of Warwick and an organisation called CAGE, which challenges your view in a way. And it also challenges the view that this has got a lot more... Pronounced in recent times, so, so they looked at three rounds of the World Values uh, Survey, which is a kind of well, it is what it sounds like the world a, a world survey takes place every few years, looking at values in different countries. So they looked at three surveys spanning the years eighty nine to two thousand and nine, and they divided the population into four groups: left and right centrists, and what they call left and right anarchists, and they identified the latter by. Uh, pairing them with responses to questions which indicated very low trust in institutions, including government, business and media. Now, there's three things they find that I think we we should talk about. The first is that that group, that anarchist group, is much bigger than I think we tend to imagine. So they talk about it being kind of, you know, getting towards... 40% 40% of the population in most countries. There are variations, but it's a big block of people. It's a big constituency,
0: this this group of people who... And these, who, and these are people who, who are not just sort of um, sceptical about institutions, but they're kind of radically distrust institutions yeah. and are really up for I think in, of, in,
1: in terms of every of question case. they're asked about trusted institutions, they're at the kind of bottom end of, of, of the scale. The second finding from this research is actually that it doesn't really grow over this eighty-nine to two thousand and nine timescale. Now, I mean there are problems with this research, by the way. I don't think the survey's very the World Value Survey isn't very big and actually the it's quite old because it's looking at a survey that finished in two thousand the last one was two thousand and nine. But nevertheless, they say there's not been much growth in this, that it's pretty consistent throughout that period. There's always been this kind of block of people inclined to distrust institutions. And the third thing that's really interesting, I think, when you kind of think of, you know, you're much younger than me, but look, you know, if you think across our lifespan, that there are a lot few left anarchists and a lot more right anarchists. That in yeah. Britain, for example, the majority of people on the left are moderates. And then the people who want to tear down the institutions are relatively, is, is a smaller group. On the right, it's the reverse. On the right, most people on the right now display this kind of anti-institutional frame. Now, you know, for for someone of my that is kind of really surprising because I grew up in a world. You know, I'm I'm a kind of child of the '60s and '70s, and I grew up in a world where the establishment was the right, and the people wanting to tear down the establishment, the radicals on the left, and that that's a really big shift.
0: Yeah, although although that kind of anti-establishment leftism has always been quite middle class, hasn't it? It's always been a kind of the intellectual kind of uh, end, end of the left. I'm not sure that the, you know, trade union movement is really kind of inherently anti establishment or, or kind of uh, radical in that in that sense historically. So uh yeah quite strong Trotskyite elements in the trade union movement though,
1: pretty consistently over over right. that time, you know. And that is a kind of let's tear everything down, gonna yeah. expect it. But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. It was a kind of middle-class position. But it just is interesting to me. And I, you know, and it chimes up. You know, we have a, a conservative leader who seems to have virtually no interest in notions like parliamentary sovereignty, has kind of dragged the royal family, the queen into controversy. And there's a big round now about whether or not it's appropriate to have a queen's speech when it's really just a pitching in the election manifesto. So it seems as though the way in which conservatism has changed from being this establishment force into being this insurgent force reflects a repositioning based on kind of market research really it looks like it well that's kind of where the supporters have gone so that's where the politics has gone
0: i mean i i don't i don't think it's quite as um consciously thought through and strategic as that one of the things that, that this research made me think about was this group of anarchists, right? Which, which is, by the way, is a bit of a kind of funny term. Yeah, yeah, I for, agree with that. Know, anti-establishment um, or anti-institution people. They're not all people who are at the kind of wrong end of, of economic inequality, right? This is too big a group, for these people, to be economically or socially oppressed. It's a, it was a coalition of, of people, some of whom felt they had nothing to lose um, from, from, you know, economic chaos. But a lot of whom thought that, well, I'm just too well off, I'm too prosperous to lose anything. So why not give it a go? Let's see what happens. In other words, people who were kind of a coalition of people who were willing to take a risk for for different reasons, which was why this is such a that was such a surprising result. Because usually on big political decisions, you, you you can bet on the low risk option, and that's right. that, that kind of pays off.
1: So that I think that's a really interesting point, and and uh, I, I want to talk about the second piece of research, and then uh, as is my wont, Ian, I'm going to present you with a kind of theory mm. uh, for you to for you to agree with or or, or rebutters, as is your wont, But the second piece of work is, I think, a much more serious piece of research, by the way. I, you know, the the, the Draco Schwartz stuff is, is fine, but it's quite derivative. It's a bit out of date. This is a, a journal article, uh, as I said, called A Need for Chaos and the Sharing of Hostile Political Rumours in Advanced Democracies by a group of American and Danish uh, academics. Now, w- what they were interested in was people who pass on fake news Hostile fake news, nasty fake news, basically. And the thing that they found was people tend to assume that's driven by partisanship, you know, that people pass on hostile fake news in order to kind of make their case. Actually, they found a large number of people who pass on hostile fake news just because it contributes to anger and chaos. That's that's all they're interested in. They don't care if it's on their side or not on their side. It might be antagonistic to their own political leanings, but if it's going to annoy people... That's fine. So this was this same group. The, I mean, I'm sure it's not exactly the same, but it overlaps with the group that Draco and Schwartz identified, the anarchist group. They too found it to be much higher than you might imagine. They too found it to be kind of 30 to 40 percent of the of the population. And these are people they described as being enthusiasts for chaos. They did identify a particular group. They said that this group was particularly people with low status, but who believed their status should be higher. And so uh, concentration amongst, it was disproportionately this group, young, male, uh, and with low education. Now, if I bring these bits of research together, it seems to me that on the one hand, public opinion is extremely complex, and that our attempts to define that it's going in one direction or another direction are really belied by its complexity. So actually, for example, you know, all this Brexit stuff and polarisation, Attitudes to immigration have become much more progressive in this country in the last few years. People's concerns have declined. Uh, In other areas like gay marriage, things have gone forward. There's much greater consensus. So, climate change. I was talking to a pollster at the weekend. He said he said now they've just done a major poll around the world. In every country, climate change is now recognised as the greatest challenge facing the human race. Now that's not the same as doing something about it, of course. But so. You know, it's complicated, this public opinion thing. It it isn't all going in one way. But we try to find that it is because we want a kind of direct causal link. I think the way to understand this instead, and I think that's where these pieces of research are really powerful, is that actually the scope for volatility, the scope for extremes is much greater than it has been uh, in the past. So it is not, as it were, that something is inexorably leading to something else. It is that there is an underlying capacity within the electorate. There is a group of people that can be appealed to. There's a group of people who don't really care about what happens. They prefer chaos. And what does that mean? Well, it means for me that we need politicians who are more responsible than they've ever been because they need to realise that the tinder is very, very dry and that this is not a time for throwing matches on it. The problem we've got, of course, is that we get the reverse. The problem is that because things are like this, we have politicians who throw matches with gay abandon. And I, So I think this is a kind of absolutely critical moment for our political class. And the question we will look back on this moment and, and ask, I think, and, and it'll determine what happens, is do we see the political establishment as a whole rallying their forces and saying we've got to try to find a way of making politics work? Or do we see those who are you know willing to play into this kind of an anarchistic, chaotic mindset exploiting it as
0: politics further deteriorates? When you mean, say making politics work... What, what what does that mean? Part of what a lot of these voters are rebelling against is is people doing politics the the kind of normal responsible uh, policy led way right. in, in part kind of technocratic centurism. yeah they're sorry they're, yeah, yeah. They're, that kind of technocratic style and actually I'm not sure that just getting better uh, just being better technocrats is going to be the answer. There's this kind of sense of boredom, I think, yeah, among yeah. a big part of the do electorate you remember, is.
1: Do you remember when we interviewed Francis Fukuyama and he, he made an interesting point, which was, he said, look, actually, the forces of polarisation may not be any greater now than they were, for example, you know, we were talking about late 1960s and early 1970s in America, which was a time of great kind of discord. But he said the problem is that there were there were still then forces that united America. And the problem is not that the divisions have, have grown, it's that the things that united us have retreated. And I think that that's what I'm reminded of at this moment, really. And that that survey which that WVS survey, World Value Survey, that says, well, it's this this 40% existed for a long time. Perhaps we should be focusing less on the existence of this group of people who want chaos and more on the inability of the majority to kind of create institutions and norms and values which are strong enough to resist that group. So again, the
0: question is what what do we mean by, by strong enough? What, what what Fukuyama said, and I, I wrote about this in my New Statesman column recently, in his book, The End of History, which we all kind of laugh at now. It's, oh, well, you know, history didn't end, did it? Well, I mean, he, as he said now, in his interview with us, his point was a bit subtler than, you know, things are going to stop happening. Towards the end of it, he says, because liberal democracy has has in many ways, you know, worked very well, you know, it's reduced violence, reduced chaos, it's it's delivered a huge amount of benefits to a huge amount of people. You end up in this situation where politics becomes quite boring, it becomes a question of kind of technocratic delivery of, of, of policies, rather than a great ideological us versus them struggle, right, kind of post the fall of the Berlin Wall. And whilst in some ways that's a you know a desirable kind of place to be in other ways it may be that history starts again as, as he says because people get bored with with a politics which is only about delivering kind of on a, on a kind of technocratic basis and that sense that that people want to kind of kick up the dust a bit and and see what happens i think is really interesting absolutely you see it with trump right and i think when trump tweets or says racist or sexist things you shouldn't actually assume the voters who like him are therefore racist and sexist i mean you know i'm sure a lot of them are but it's not as simple as that what they are responding to is his his uh you know he's like the joker
2: believe it or not i watch my words very carefully there are those that think i'm A very stable genius. A very stable genius who watches his words carefully wouldn't be talking about coups and treason and civil war. Here's a man who is on tape saying exactly what he's going to do in terms of corruption, and he gets away with it. If that ever happened to a Republican, they'd be getting the electric chair right now. With respect,
3: Master Wayne, perhaps this is a man you don't fully understand either. Some men aren't looking for anything logical. Some men just want to watch the world burn.
0: They're responding to that sense of kind of anti-chaos and, and being able to say things that you're not supposed to say. You know, to come back to your question of how politicians deal with this, people still expect the elites and the establishments to clean up all these messes that they're, they're trying to create. Just leave that at that, that point, because I, I want to come back to this,
1: because I, I want... What I want to suggest to you, Ian, is that the technocratic moderate politics that you know I work for Blair—that that—that's the, the kind of peak of this kind of technocratic moderate kind of politics. That in a way, it, it had pathologies, it had problems, which have come to the surface, which a new politics needs somehow to reflect. So I want to explore what polit- how politics would have to change to be able to counter this. But just before we do that, let's just hear. Two contrasting approaches. Because a few weeks ago, I spoke at an event at King's College London on the, the state of trust, facts and democracy. And beforehand, I spoke with my fellow panellists, Michael Dimmock, who's director of the Pew Research Centre in the US, and Bobby Duffy from the King's College Policy Institute. And the question I, I really posed was, how much do our countries, the US and the UK, really have in common? So uh, we're standing here at the back uh, of a lecture theatre at King's College London. The audience tonight are going to hear two very interesting presentation. So let's start with Michael start with yours from the Pew Research Center which is about kind of po- a things but polarization in America in particular. So I know it's not easy but can you summarize the core of your of, of your findings?
2: It is hard to summarize, but you're right. It, it, there's, there are a couple big factors going on right now, which is a really deep level of distrust in the electoral process in America mm-hmm. right now that's leading people to feel even more alienated and removed from their political leaders and mistrustful of their motives, and even that the voice of the public is being expressed in a meaningful way in the electoral system. And so you combine that with this hyper-partisan polarization in the U.S., where Almost every issue debate has collapsed into a single divide along Republican versus Democratic lines to the point where people are identifying personally in a very partisan way in the way not only that they look at issues and their political leaders, but even the way they think about their communities and others in society, that there's a deep level of mistrust at that point not only in the electoral process, but in the electorate itself and its ability to make good, effective decisions for the country, um, which really kind of gets to the root of our confidence in democracy.
1: So the fascinating thing for me, reading both reports, is that what you've got going on in America is a party-based divide. The parties right. are becoming more and more dominant. There's research that shows party division is much greater than the division along lines of race or gender or class. Yes, yes. But that isn't the pattern at all in Britain, is it, Bobby?
3: No, that's right. I mean, I think the work from the US and the work that Pew's done is really compelling. And the danger is that we try to translate it wholesale into a UK situation where it's very, very different. So what we've seen is entirely different trends of party de-alignment in many ways, a weakening of partisan identities that have been overlain by a new identity in some ways. That's emerged over a long period of time. It's not created by Brexit, but it's been uh, revealed and then reinforced by Brexit. That's much more along uh, liberal authoritarian lines, but isn't even summed up in that. It's much more complicated. So what we'd say is we've got two big things going on in the UK context, which is definitely an increased polarisation, if you like, around an emotional identity around Brexit. But when you look at the issue-based things, there's, there is often either quite a lot of convergence and not that much difference between different groups, or even where there is difference, it's much more like fragmentation. We don't have two... Big monolithic blocks facing each other over issues. It's much more like a mix of the USA on the identity-driven elements around Brexit. They're much more like Europe in terms of fragmentation around the issues. So we've we've got a different, we've got a kind of blended model, uh, a kind of mid-Atlantic model, as we often (laughs) do in these types of things, where we can't be summed up by the, the trends that have been really well identified in the US by Pew.
1: So, Michael, what what do you put this fundamental difference down to? Because you know we are two countries separated, uh, as I say, separated by a language right. or <laughs> the phrases, but but this, they are very different patterns.
2: They are, and but there, there's a similarity because a lot of what Donald Trump's campaign and his presidency has stoked is a very similar cultural, socioeconomic divide as what you've seen in the UK. Actually, I shouldn't even say socioeconomic. It's it's almost more of a cultural divide that's tapping into a lot of the same emotions. A lot of the same identity issues. But in the U.S., I think what was different is that rather than parties being decentralized as here, where that new division crystallized across party lines, in the U.S., it ended up collapsing right into the magnetic forces of partisanship. And now, in effect, Trump's arrival on the scene has realigned the parties a bit. But it really ended up becoming part of that partisan division, not a separate division. And do you
1: think, in a way, Bobby, is it in any way about people? I mean, the Democrats had a a world leader in Obama, you know, which mobilized them enormously. The Republicans have got this incredible figure of Trump, who, whatever you think about him, commands attention. We haven't really had leaders who grab us until now, Boris Johnson. So it'd be interesting to see whether Boris Johnson and his presence and his profile leads to more of what we've seen in America. We see a kind of cementing of conservatism behind him, for example. Yeah, no, it's
3: a really good point. I think in the report we do talk about the real importance of political that there is a political efficacy and leadership issue here. The politicians can help create and shape these kind of trends. This is not just something that happens uh, structurally. But equally, I think there is a structural context that's very different in the UK, which has been uh, about our party system, the first-past-the-post system, and the way that has kind of worked. And I think what, we're, what the big question that we end up, with is how does the party political structure realign itself around this stronger Brexit identity and I think that's what we are seeing playing out with the Lib Dems uh, and now Labour and obviously we've got Conservative and and Brexit party all kind of taking their place on this new spectrum. The economic left-right divide has not gone away. On some issues it's still the dominant thing that determines your view and your attachment to a political party. So it's how those two dimensions and probably a few other but mainly those two dimensions realign themselves within a quite restrictive party political uh, and electoral system
1: let me ask you both two last questions firstly is one thing that is in common between the two countries institutions the
2: decline of faith in institutions that that is a common feature isn't it well yes i think But it's easy to misread what that means, I think. In the U.S., you've definitely seen a long period of deep distrust in government. But that frustration is very, very focused on the elected officials in Washington, not just Trump, but Congress, the Senate, the elected officials who people feel increasingly removed from and increasingly skeptical that the process through which they're selected is a is a bad one. American public so views it's of federal it's, representative it's, democracy. Yes, yes, it's uh, quite specific. Very then. specific, right? The Confidence in state and local confidence in other arms of government haven't de- deteriorated in the same way, and even confidence in other institutions that play a role in society is down a bit. But it's almost again more that it's polarizing views in America of universities has polarized. Polarized, of science has polarized, of the media, for sure, has polarized. So it's almost more of a story of how all of these institutions of authority have been pulled into this Sort of political polarized debate now more so than just a pure erosion of trust in all institutions. Mm. And
1: is
3: that, is that the case? I mean, obviously the party thinks different, Bobby, party thing's but the different. decline of faith in institutions. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think the. Uh, I've been looking for this because I'm, my next book is on generational differences. And so I'm being, that's exactly what I've been looking at. Is there a generationally driven decline in faith in institutions to sort out today's problems? Because you, you would theorize that it might exist in a world where. Younger people are more used to fluidity, filtering, tailoring. Why would you have these big monolithic institutions that are going to sort stuff out for you? And it's very patchy, I would say, the generational driven differences in viewing institutions. So you get massive differences in pride in the welfare state in the UK generationally, where you've got huge gaps between the oldest and youngest that are completely flat, not going to change during their lives so you you could say actually that's a sign of institutional decline and on religion same sort of pattern not in the US Mm -hmm. interestingly not nearly to the the same extent but then there's loads of other things where there's not that much difference obviously health service but even the police all of these types of kind of traditional institutions where you may think people will see this uh, their efficacy declining over time and people questioning it more you're not really seeing it. It's, it's messier than that and we're not I don't think we're inevitably heading towards a breakdown in institutional relationships between the public and and the institutions. And then finally...
1: Neither of you have mentioned social media. And most books about polarization and the the crisis of liberal Mm -hmm. democracy, and and there are a lot of them, Mm -hmm. you'll find a chapter dedicated to social media Mm -hmm. and its polarizing effect. That's in your presentation, I Mm -hmm. think, Michael. You talk about
0: that.
2: A bit. And I think there is a polarizing effect that can happen there because of the way either algorithms or choices can frame the information environments people are in and they can potentially get reinforcing messages and fewer cross-pollinating messages. I loved your slide, by the way, that that, that showed that everybody exaggerates how good they are at recognizing fake news. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. And people feel... But but, but I'm glad you raised that because I think that's the deeper issue. People feel in the current information environment like they're being bombarded by bad information, particularly on social media. People are very skeptical. They say they are. They think that they're facing not even just misinformation, but active disinformation frequently online in, in those spaces. And yes, they're pretty confident in their ability to sort it out, but they're not so confident in their fellow citizens' wow. ability to, to do that, to, to sort it out. And that means their faith in the electorate is down because they feel like there's this mayhem of bad information out there that is potentially leading to bad democratic outcomes. But secondarily, it's leading to a little bit of a how do you even know what to believe? This kind of throw-your-hands-up moment where you, people are even questioning, you know, w- what are facts, what are truth in that environment.
1: And, and Bobby, what about here? I mean, we're still, we still remember Michael Gove and his <laughs> famous comment about uh, experts. Okay. Uh, is, is there a similar questioning in Britain, loss of faith in, in, in author, the kind of authority of experts? And no, news. not really,
3: not really. I mean, the trust in experts, of anything, has gone up. I mean, the trust in scientists has gone almost like a mirror of trust in religious leaders. So scientists on the up, <laughs> religious leaders on the down. It's a new age of enlightenment, uh, more or less. Um, no, I mean, I think I've done a lot of looking at this from a misperceptions um, point of view, and it is important, and you shouldn't downplay it but she also shouldn't uh, lose the distinction between uh, what, how this affects activists and elites at the top who are talking to themselves a lot in these <laughs> types of bubbles and how that actually impacts on the general public, uh, more general people still get most of their news from the tv from uh, traditional media sources it's changing over time definitely and it's going to change and we, uh, unfortunately we don't have partisan tv in britain so that's one thing <laughs> that we... is that is one thing yeah. uh, and lots of lots of decent work that shows filter bubbles really important but maybe exaggerated uh, in terms of the impact on people's views so i think uh, again it is definitely uh, an issue but it's not as dire as we can paint it sometimes mike bobby thanks very much enjoy the event great thank you thank you Michael
1: Dimmock and Bobby Duffy. We'll put a link to the full event uh, in the description of this episode. So, yeah, things are different. Different sides of the uh, Atlantic, and and this goes of my theory in that, in a sense, the problem is that there is a volatility, that there is a kind of a capacity to set fire to things, which is greater than it has been in the past, and that is why we need a political class that that acts with responsibility now. Your challenge to me, and it is a very fair one, is, well, you know, we have that technocratic moderate politics, and that's what people are rebelling against. So, you know, the the idea that you might kind of go back to that is kind of difficult. Now, first of all, I just want to identify where these issues are landing in both America and the UK. So it seems to me the critical issue in America right now is, will there be sufficient mainstream Republican opinion to do anything about Trump? So if Trump, rides roughshod through this scandal where it looks it looks at the moment like he's banged to rights in having used the presidential office to try and screw us up which is you know i mean that is the behavior of an authoritarian tin pot dictator if he gets away with that and the republicans do nothing about it Republican establishment and then it seems to me we have we've crossed into a new into a new territory so when history looks back on this i think they will not judge trump because we knew what trump was he's you know he's crazy but they will look at the Republicans and say, "You in in the end, you did absolutely nothing to defend kind of basic constitutional norms." The
0: Senate and and you know we'll see if it gets much worse from here. Uh, there may be things change, but at this point, I don't see uh, I don't see Republicans uh, abandoning ship in big numbers uh, at this point.
2: So, President Trump, um, if I can say yay, nay, whatever, President is going to say what the president is going to do. It's up to us, as members In
1: the UK, the argument we've got is, you know, again, Boris Johnson's doing what Boris Johnson needs to do. And he's doing it quite effectively, judging by the polls. What's happening with the opposition? well, they can't even agree on whether or not Jeremy Corbyn should be the leader of a, you know, they're, that's, they're completely stuck on who should lead a transitional government, even though that transitional government only lasts about six months. So again, I think if Boris Johnson succeeds and we leave the European Union, there's a the no deal. History will look back and say, why could the opposition parties not get their act together in the face of the, knowing that that was the only thing they could do to stop this? So I'm just giving those examples. Of, there are concrete examples that one comes across where the kind of political establishment could, if it wanted to, stand in the way of populist,
0: chaotic politics. And it's failing that, isn't it? <laughs> and, and 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 in the process proving a lot of anti establishment voters and, and, and politicians correct. And Washington is corrupt in, in you know most senators are, are multi-millionaires and and they can't get anything done and they 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 are always thinking about short-term political advantage rather than long-term interests of, of the country and in in the UK yeah I mean the the opposition parties are are, are in a mess so what's to be done here? so I'm the know. one here,
1: I'm the one who's arguing and I, I want to go on and give some suggestions but
0: I, I I I I'm getting from you a kind of pessimism, really. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I I think if you think it's just about policy, I I think you 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 kind of missing something, right? I I, spe- I suppose is my point. If we think this is just about a better, more detailed uh, manifesto from one of the major parties, where we kind of deal. I mean, obviously, that's still hugely important. But I also think it's to do with style of communication and tone of and the way people behave and the way politicians behave. Not talking and acting like a politician, being willing to, for instance, admit to what you don't know or, 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 or making mistakes and, and, and not getting flustered by them. Some skillful communicators can do that. Much as Boris Johnson has huge flaws, um, he is actually quite good at, at, at talking, not like a normal politician. If he is more popular than he ought to be, it's, it's because of that. So I'd like to see just a new generation of politicians who try to escape or, or just don't get sucked into the, the conventional ways that politicians have, have talked and behaved for the so, last 50 years. So I
1: completely agree with that. And, 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 and that's where I go back to this suggestion that actually, this is not about going back to the technocratic, moderate politics of the of the kind of third way, the Clinton, Blair, Schroeder kind of view of the world, because. Three reasons. First one, if you go back to that politics, we stuck to a position which said we are right about everything and the other guy is wrong about everything and if you elect us, everything will be brilliant. And that position, that we can solve your problems, is I think you're completely right. Politicians have got to get to say, look, we don't know what to do about this and we need to open it up to you and that's why I like things like deliberative democracy. So take climate change. We're sitting here, Extinction Rebellion's doing all sorts of weird and wacky stuff around London. We're committed to this 2050 target now. Our politicians need to say, look, we're committed to this. You want us to commit to this, but we've no idea how to do it. Let's have a conversation nationally about the contribution we're all going to need to make to do that, rather than saying, wait for us to come up with a plan, which, by the way, will then end up being very unpopular and leading to all sorts of kind of backlash. So that's the first thing. I completely agree with that. Politicians who say we don't know the answers and we need to really engage citizens in coming to those answers. I think, secondly, it is about a level of responsibility in terms of rhetoric you know, I wrote in a, in a blog recently that the one of the reasons I'm a fan of Karen Lucas is I heard her make a speech a few years ago in which she spoke for 25 minutes and she talked about why she felt the other parties wouldn't do enough on climate. She didn't disparage them once. She didn't caricature them once. She just said, look, we have a genuine disagreement and I'm agreeing and this is what I believe, but it's hard for Labour because of their trade union relationships. It's hard for... So we've somehow got to have a general, and we're seeing a bit of this, I think now, but we need politicians who recognise that when you slag off Europe, when you say, the reason my opponent disagrees with me is not because we have a genuine disagreement, because they're a bad person, or they're corrupt in some way, that this is pouring oil onto the on, on, onto the flames. And then the third and final thing, which is something that people like Francis Fukuyama have said to us in the past, is somehow moderate politics has also got to be passionate politics. It's Ah, got to speak to people's values and national pride and stuff like that. Now, that that recipe, and that's what I'm asking you to say, do you think the combination of of more responsible forms of political rhetoric and and discourse, admitting governments can't solve everything and we need to bring citizens in, and having a politics which is moderate in its means but quite passionate and idealistic in its goals –
0: is that a mixture that could work? Well, it could work, but it's really, really hard. And part of the reason it's hard is, is there's kind of conflict between the, the second and third points, right? And to say we, we need a, essentially a less tribal politics is one thing. And then you say we need to be you know, really passionate and emotional in our politics. Well, it's just really hard to be passionate and emotional and at the same time say we're all on the same side. You know, what, what, one, one, that, that kind of like, hey, yeah, you know, yeah, everyone's yeah. got good ideas here. We're all kind of work, work this through. That does not lend itself... I think there's a Yates quote coming, isn't there? To, it, oh, is there? Which one do you think? The uh, best, like, all conviction whilst... Well, so, yeah, oh, yeah, right, yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't sit easily with passion and excitement and... and getting people to rallies and joining parties and and getting engaged that's why politicians do it you know, it it fires people up to say you know, there's a good side and a bad side I I agree with you, that would be the ideal outcome but, but I think saying it is one thing and doing it is incredibly hard
1: well, Ian, it's been a fascinating conversation. You know, I feel that what we need to do and polarised over the next few weeks is, is to focus a bit more on this question of, you know, we, we've diagnosed polarisation over 20 episodes or whatever it is, and, and, and you know, we should carry on doing that because it is it is a kind of major phenomenon of our time. But I think we need to try and talk more about what is this, what kind of politics could solve the position and the increasingly dangerous position that we're in. So we'll, we'll come back a bit, I think, to solutions, new ways of doing things. Um, i've blogged a couple of times at the rsa website on these issues so if you want to kind of join in the conversation please do comment uh, on those it's been a great uh, conversation today and thank you uh, for that if you've enjoyed this conversation then we'd really appreciate it if you left uh, a rating or review in your podcast app of polarized uh, today's program was presented by ian leslie and myself matthew taylor the producer was james shield and we were brought to you by the
3: rsa